Hello, and welcome to the Valley Voices podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Cirillo from New England Public Media. The stories you'll hear today were recorded live at the Marigold Theater in East Hampton. The theme was Who Done It, and we definitely solved a few Western Mass mysteries that night. First up, David Bully tells us how he took matters into his own hands when his wife's phone went missing. So I, I grew up in northern Maine in a small town, and we didn't have a lot of use for police and things like that. And so if someone stole something, well, you just went to their house and took it back. You know what did. <laughs> a couple of years ago, uh, my wife came back from walking the dog, and she had lost her phone. So uh, she went to look for it, and then I went to look for it on the bicycle, calling the number. I couldn't find it. I came home, and we called the police to see if anybody had picked it up and turned it in. Uh, no, no one had. So we thought, oh yeah, technology. We pulled up the laptop, find the phone. It was on the moon towards Hadley. <laughs> so we watched the phone go to Hadley and park in a parking lot. And then I called the Hadley police. And I was like, hey, guys, uh, my phone is stolen and it's in a parking lot in Hadley. Could you help us out, you know? And they said, no. <laughs> they were like, it's just a phone. We're not going to do anything. And I was like, what do you mean it's just a phone? It's a thousand freaking dollars. <laughs> no, they're not going to do anything. It's not worth their time and effort. So I said to them, Okay, if you're not going to do anything, I'm going to go take my phone and you might get a call about something else. Click. <laughs> Put the fear of God in them. <laughs> then I went to Hadley to get my phone. It was in a small mall, not the big malls, but a small strip mall. And I pulled in there. There was a, there was a hairdresser and a dentist and the eyeglass store. And I looked around. Where would a thief go? Well, they would go into the hairdresser's store first, of course. So I walked into the hairdresser, I got my wife's number pulled up. And I walked in and I hit the button and I looked around. <laughs> Nothing happened. And the, the woman behind the counter was like, can I help you? And I was like, no thanks, I'm helping myself. And I dialed the number again. Nothing, I sniffed at all the bags, I looked around, nothing. So, uh, they must be in the eyeglass store. I went into the eyeglass store. Same thing, no phone. Thieves don't see the dentist. So, so, so I just walked around the parking lot. I figured they must have left the car in the van. I was thinking, how am I gonna smash a window when my phone rings in one of these cars? I was feeling it, oh, I was excited. But I walked around the parking lot. Well, finally, no phone, and then my wife instant messages me, it's on the move. Well, I looked, there was a ratty looking car pulling out right there. It must have been them. So I hopped in my car and Route 9 in Hadley, if you've ever been on <laughs> I waited and waited and the ratty looking cars getting further and further away. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I just hit the gas and just cut somebody off. There's, there is nothing in the world like a little bit of self-righteousness and a mission to turn a white guy into a pure asshole. <laughs> See, they were honking their horns and flipping me off. I was like, I'm on a mission. And I zoomed after my car, cutting people off. The car, uh, the phone stopped at the Walmart parking lot and then went into the Walmart. 
So I was right behind him and I ran into Walmart holding my phone above my head like the sort of truth. <laughs> I don't know why I did that because phones work just as well down here. <laughs> but I ran around that store sniffing at bags, checking out pockets, listening carefully. I knew the ringer was on. She had left it on. Ah, nothing. I searched and searched and searched. Security started following me around. <laughs> they were like, uh, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm doing it. And I kept going. No, nothing. Finally, another message. It's on the move again. And I zoomed to my car and I, uh, some other ratty looking car. Thieves must have ratty looking cars, right? And I followed them and the phone was headed north. And I was speeding. I was, oh man, if I had caught this person, I was like excited, you know? It was like back in the old days. <laughs> so I zoomed and zoomed and zoomed. Uh, well, I got back to Montague. I must have been right on their heels, so I thought. And I got back to Montague where we live and the police called me. And they said, oh, we have your phone. Someone just dropped it off. <laughs> Uh, I was like, oh, geez, that's, you know, that's so nice. I was disappointed a little. Like, <laughs> but also, it was very nice, and I was like, geez, can I, you know, get the person's name? I'd like to send them a reward or a thank you note or something. That was so nice of them. Uh, the officer explained that the woman had picked it up and was on her way to the dentist. And it was raining, so she took the phone with her to keep it safe, and then stopped for errands, and then went back home. And, and no, the, the, she wanted to remain anonymous. She just did a good deed. So, so I still don't know who took my phone. But I'm, but I'm really, really glad I never caught him. <laughs> That was David Bully. David is an educator, writer, poet, musician, and he admits, still kind of a redneck. He lives in Turner's Falls. All right, our next story comes from another Dave, Dave Fromm, who remains a mystery to a kind family on the Cape who got more than they bargained for when he asked them a favor. Several years ago, my uncle invited me and my cousin Mark to come down and run in the Falmouth Road Race with him. Falmouth Road Race is a 7.2 mile fun run that they hold on Cape Cod every August. My uncle lived there and my cousin Mark was a really serious runner. I was not a serious runner, so I said, thanks but no thanks, and they went ahead with their plans. Then at the last minute, my cousin Mark had to bail out and my uncle was gonna have to run by himself. So I said, sure, I'll take Mark's spot. I said that even though being from Western Massachusetts, I'm opposed to Cape Cod in principle. <laughs> also, I hadn't trained for this event, but uh, this was uh, right about the end of that period of my life when I thought I could do things like that. <laughs> so, my wife and I drove down on a Saturday and met my aunt and 
we had a big pre-race meal of pasta and meatballs and garlic bread and salad and uh, we had beer and some Gatorade to hydrate. And they also had these things called stuffed quahogs, which are these giant clams they hunt down there in the Cape. They're disgusting. <laughs> and then we went to bed. And uh, the next morning got up really early. My uncle and I got up really early and had a cup of coffee and went down to the start of the race. Uh, the Falmouth Road Race is not a fun run at all, actually. Uh, the first mile is uphill, and then it transitions into a series of rolling uphills uh, before flattening out into a three-mile stretch of beachfront where the sun and the salt air conspire to suck all the moisture out of your body. There were something like 14,000 runners in this event, and they ran the gamut from Kenyans to people in lobster costumes. <laughs> I was passed by several people in lobster costumes. <laughs> Sometimes spectators would yell, come on, Mark, that guy's wearing a lobster costume. <laughs> and I would feel bad for this Mark character until I remembered that I was wearing a bib with my cousin's name on it. <laughs> and just for variety, the race ended with an uphill. Uh, but then there was the expo, and at the expo they gave us a bottle of water and a granola bar and some orange wedges and a, a, a free hot dog. And I found my uncle who had finished way ahead of me. Uh, and then we found our families and we decided to go back uh, to my aunt and uncle's house for the post-race bash. And almost immediately upon leaving the expo grounds, I felt an ominous rumbling in my stomach. And it wasn't too bad, but I knew I was going to have to deal with it at some point. Um, and if I had my choice, I'd rather not deal with it in a porta potty at a 14,000 person expo. The first problem was that my wife and I had to park about a mile from the finish. And by the time we got to the car, I was feeling a lot worse. The, the discomfort was coming in waves, and each wave was, was markedly stronger than the one before it. And the second problem is that she had parked in a cul de sac where every available spot of asphalt had a car on it and they were all trying to leave at once. I was in some trouble at this point. Uh, I started to sweat. Uh, um, my wife, hi honey, uh, she, did, she did a great job staying calm, uh, which was good because if she had panicked, I was going to panic and that would be bad. I mean, we were in a Prius. <laughs> Finally, I, I felt a wave of discomfort so intense that when it passed, I felt that my body was sending me a very clear message, and the message was, we have done all we can. <laughs> you, you have 90 seconds. <laughs> At this point, we were stopped in front of one of those classic Cape cottages with the shingles and the buoys and all that bullshit. <clears throat> and there was a family picnicking in the front lawn. And I was like, I have to ask them. And my wife was just straight ahead, and she was not. So I got out of the car and I walked up the lawn, and um, they looked at me and I said, I'm really sorry to bother you, but you know, a lot of, a lot of traffic, a lot of Gatorade, is there any way I could um, duck in and use your restroom? And I could tell they were suspicious. But there was an old man in the lawn chair, I think it must have been his house, and um, he looked like a veteran. Like maybe he had seen some stuff in his life. <laughs> And so he kind of nodded towards the door, and one of his, I guess it was one of his daughters, showed me in and pointed up to the top of the stairs where their lovely upstairs bathroom was. And I went up the stairs as, as fast as I could, uh, and I closed the door and I locked it. And um, 
uh, I'm going to spare you the details of what happened next. Suffice to say, it was not pretty. And when it was over, I looked for anything I could, I could use to try to cover my tracks, like any kind of potpourri or a matchbook or uh, some sort of aerosol, but there was nothing. There was just a copy of Vogue magazine on the counter, and I kind of used it like a fan to try to like, move the air around, but it just made things worse. So I composed myself and I washed up and I, I, I opened the door and rushed down the stairs, rushed out the front door and waved, said, thank you so much. And I jumped in the car and my wife looked at me and she said, are you okay? And I said, just get us out of here. <laughs> but we were still stuck in traffic. And we had to wait there for 15 more minutes as members of that family went into the house. And then came back out and just stared at me, looking completely appalled. <laughs> and so, I think about that family sometimes. <laughs> and I wonder if they gather every year for the fall of And if they do, do they ever tell the story of the year that a mystery man jumped out of a car and just obliterated their lovely upstairs bathroom. And I hope they can laugh at that story. I know that when I think about it, I'm, I'm totally mortified. And for me, the, the only silver lining is that at least they think that that mystery man was my cousin Mark. That was Dave Fromm. Dave is an attorney and the author of two books, including a Western Mass-based novel called The Duration. He lives in Longmeadow. This is the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Media. I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and I've got one more story for you. But before Julia Mitchell brings us home, it's no mystery. We want to hear your stories, too. Find out how to audition for Valley Voices Story Slams at nepm.org slash valleyvoices. We've got links to our video shorts there, too. All right, now for our last story. Julia Mitchell tells us about meeting her idol, Marlo Thomas. It is 1973, and I am eight years old, and I get my hands on a vinyl copy of an album called Free to Be You and Me. Every story, every song on that album was a radical concept to me and my Southern conservative upbringing. Free to be you and me and Marlo Thomas became prophets of a life that I never knew existed. And I sort of became obsessed with Marlo Thomas. And I convinced myself that if Marlo Thomas and I were ever to meet, we would become best friends forever. We were living right outside of New York City at the time, and I read that Marlo Thomas was going to be in the Macy's Day Parade. And I begged my parents to please let us go, but we had to go early enough so that we could sit right beside the stands where the celebrities would go after they had finished the parade. When we got there, the TV cameras had already set up, but the man announced that he would be choosing people from the audience to stand beside the celebrities when they did their interviews. And I weaseled my way through the crowd and I found the guy in charge and I explained to him 
exactly how much I loved Marlo Thomas. And I showed him my very lovely eight-year-old made book of everything free to be you and me. And I guess maybe he felt sorry for me, and he said I could stand beside Marlo. I went to go tell my mother, she was so excited, and she went to the payphone, and she called every aunt we have and every friend she knows in Alabama and called them long distance to tell them to watch the Macy's Day Parade. When I got back, the host called me over and my mother insisted on coming with me. She said it was because she wanted me to have some moral support or whatever, but really, really, I knew it was because she wanted to be on TV and waved to all of her friends in Alabama. So Marlo then descends out of the stands and she sparkles and she shines exactly the way I imagined. And they talked for a minute about a play she was in and then the announcer said, Marlo, I'd like you to meet your biggest fan. And my head went woozy by that endorsement. And so she looked at me, and sensing I had gone mute, she looked at me and she said, boy, that sure is a nice book you got there. Would you like me to autograph it? And all I could squeak out was, yes, please. And my knees got really wobbly. And then she said, do you have a pen? Joy, I forgot the pen. And I saw the announcer begin to pat all of his pockets looking for a pen. And Barlow sort of scanned the crowd to see if she could find a pen. I knew I was going to lose her if I didn't produce a pen. And then I remembered my mother. My hand went backwards and like an expert pickpocket, it plunged into her purse. And I began feeling all the things she had, like lipsticks and lotions and all that stuff. And then right at the bottom, I found a pen. And it wasn't just any pen. It was one of those pens from the 1970s, you know, those big blue and white ones that had the color selector top. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Marlo's gonna love this. I'm gonna give her options, you know? And so I pulled the pen out of my mom's purse and I thrust it into Marlo's face and I go, I've got exactly what you need and, and you can keep it. And instead of that color selector big pen, I was holding another circular item that was at the bottom of my mom's purse. It was white, and it had blue lettering, T-A-M-P-A-X. Marlo looked to the TV host. The TV host went white. I, however, was clueless and figured she just didn't hear me the first time. And so I said, Marlo, this is my mom's favorite, and she'll be so glad you get to use it. <laughs> and then Marlo did the most Marlo thing ever. She took that tampon, she put it right in her pocket, and she looked in the camera and she said, isn't it wonderful? When a fan gives you something you can actually use. <laughs> and the host took his cue 
and whisk Marlo away. <laughs> and she never looked back to see if I was coming. No autograph. No explanation. I knew I had missed my chance. I knew we would never be friends. I would just be another fan in all the sea of fans. Many years later, I was at Auburn University and I was working in the president's office. And as a perk, they let me take the speakers to dinner. And it was the 1980s. And Bill Donahue was the king of afternoon television. And I was a broadcast major, so I was really excited to talk to him. And though, though my obsession with Marlowe had waned a little bit, I always knew that Marlowe and Free to Be You and Me was important to the formation of my life. And so I was excited to talk to him. So at dinner, I said, you know, Mr. Donahue, what would be your most embarrassing moment? And he looked at me with that little twinkle in his blue eyes he has, and he says, you know, I am so lucky. I do not get embarrassed. But my wife, Marlowe, has the most charming, adorable story. <laughs> and she tells it all the time. <laughs> and as I listen to Bill Donahue tell my story back to me, <laughs> all I could think, my little eight-year-old self came alive in my brain, and I just kept thinking, she remembers me. <laughs> That was Julia Mitchell. Julia is a Southern transplant that finds telling stories about her family is cheaper and more productive than therapy. Julia actually sent me a photo of her little eight-year-old self after this show, and my God, if she was not the cutest thing. No wonder Marlo wanted to meet her. All right, that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And if you want to talk storytelling or give us some notes on the show, write us at valleyvoices at nepm.org. Valley Voices Story Slam is produced by New England Public Media and the Academy of Music. Huge thanks to the folks at the Marigold Theater who hosted this show. Check them out on Instagram. They have a full band karaoke, you guys. It's amazing. This show is produced by mystery woman Katie Wright for New England Public Media. I'm Vanessa Cervillo. See you next time.